Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I was, I was reflecting this week that I live in uh, a nice area nice area which i think is relevant because we're talking about niceria this week no we're not the podcast is over <laughs> there's no video on this podcast but you're James. i'm sure the loyal listener can Head imagine my face listening to that knowing it was coming and yet unable to do anything to stop it Yes. Um, yeah, this week we're going to talk about Neisseria, so these are the gram-negative cocci. Uh, so we've talked about gram-positive cocci, gram-positive uh, bacilli, now we're moving into the gram-negatives. Uh, and uh, for gram-negative cocci, aerobic cocci at least, there's really only one game in town, and that is the genus of Neisseria. Yeah, there's some other gram-negative cocci that cause clinical disease, but... They're not that important, or at least we might come back to them. Who knows? There's mm. there's limitless numbers of pathogens to discuss, so that's part of the problem. It depends on how it depends how niche you want to get, I suppose. Yes, um, uh, but you know, if you're if you're looking down a microscope, like a, a, a looking at gram steam, and you see gram negative cocci, you think Neisseria before anything else. Yeah. Uh, but first, a bit of background. Uh, so this genus is named uh, after a guy called Albert Neisser. He was a German bacteriologist who, in 1879, uh, discovered the first known example, which was Neisseria gonorrhea. The, this genus is, is dominated by two species which cause disease, and that's Neisseria meningitidis and Neisseria gonorrhea. There are other species. Um, most of them are found in the upper respiratory tract, and most of them can be ignored unless the patient is immunocompromised. Uh, so I'll just run through those uh, species for, for reference. That's Bacilliformis, Cinerea, Flavescens, Lactamica, Mucosa, Sica, Subflava, and Flava. Um, these occasionally turn up in, in throat swabs. Usually they can be uh, dismissed as uh, respiratory commensals. That's what they're Nicedia is doing normally, it's living in the back of the throat, doing nothing. The thing that makes gonorrhea and meningitis different from the others is that they have the capability uh, of invading past that epithelial layer and causing disease. Yeah, sometimes rarely you'll see those other species causing disease in the immune-compromised patients. Uh, so I think Lactamica is one that I've seen in the literature most. Yeah, Lactamica, yeah. Oh, yeah, Lactamica, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yes. uh, so continuing on what they are, so they're gram-negative cocci, they're catalase positive and oxidase positive, which are the two main differentiating biochemical tests that you would do rapidly at the bench. Um, so if you've got gram-negative cocci and the catalase and oxidase tests are positive, then you're thinking Neisseria. And you're really probably probably going to know whether it's going to be Neisseria meningitis or Neisseria gonorrhea on the patient sample. Although I guess you could get Neisseria gonorrhea on a, on a throat swab or, or something similar. 
but depending on the clinical presentation, what you're testing for, um, you're not often going to get the two of them mixed up. No. So the clinical presentations are so different that, uh, that in fact, we've divided the rest of the podcast into to talking about these pathogens separately because they cause such different disease. Yeah. If you want to differentiate the two of them apart, then one easy test is that both ferment glucose, but uh, only Neisseria meningitis will do maltose, whereas uh, gonorrhea's uh, maltose tests will be negative. Mm. Just as a note, when you're looking at gram-negative cocci, the other ones you'll mainly be thinking of are Vianella, um, although that's uh, anaerobic. You know, you wouldn't see that growing. Uh, most of these are grown in carbon dioxide uh, cabinets. And Moraxella cateralis, or other Moraxella, um, which, you know, can cause clinical disease. It can cause conjunctivitis, and it can cause uh, infections around the upper airways. Uh, but usually on the gram stain, they are cocoa bacilli rather than pure uh, cocci. Yeah, this is what really annoys me about gram negatives is that sometimes they can look, some of them, some of them are always look like bacilli, but some of them can, can be this halfway house that we call cocobacilli. But in reality, it just means they could be anything. They could look like anything. Yeah, I think there's a bacteria can uh, look however they damn well please. Uh, yes. <laughs> maybe to, to paraphrase um, Hickam's dictum. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, you know, I, I was thinking... One of my colleagues sent an uh, image recently of a listeria. It's meant to be a gram-positive bacillus, and it was a gram-negative rod. And it was very clearly like a gram-negative rod. Mm. So uh, just like the caveat there is that gram stains aren't, aren't really 100% reliable. So no, no. go with the clinical syndrome first. Yeah, totally. Uh, speaking of which, why don't we talk about Neisseria meningitidis first? So yeah, Neisseria meningitidis. So we talked about some of the other Neisseria species and that they are usually within the upper respiratory tract and Neisseria meningitis, this is the same. So this uh, is an organism that we often think of, you know, oh, Neisseria meningitis, you know, it's a, a severe, uh, it's a pathogen that can cause severe disease, but a significant minority of people will be colonized with this in upper respiratory tract. That's quoted as about 8 to 25% of adults. Uh, although we can see in, in the literature that uh, adolescents, young adults, have higher rates of carriage uh, theorized to be to do with being encountering other people. And as we go around our daily lives and interact with other people, uh, we're exposed to their any viruses that they have, but also their upper respiratory tract uh, bacteria. Mm. And the problem isn't that, you know, say you're colonized with a strain of Neisseria meningitis. Uh, most of the time when you get infection, it's not the strains that you're colonized with already. It's you're exposed to someone who's a carrier, who's got a different strain. You pick it up and within that first sort of 10 day period after being exposed, you then develop disease if you don't have immunity to it to already. Yeah. Um, so what risk factors for uh, invasive disease are? Who's, who's the people that are going to pick up the invasive disease if they're exposed? When you think about risk factors, there's there's risk factors of the human and virulence factors of the pathogen itself. So taking taking the human first, um, it's more common in uh, two particular age groups. So three months to three years, and eighteen to twenty three years, kind of reflecting time periods when I suppose three months to three years you're encountering lots and lots of new people and getting lots of kisses and cuddles from your family, no doubt, uh, and then eighteen to twenty three years, you're very socially gregarious and uh, maybe receiving a few 
kisses and cuddles from strangers at that point too. It's uh, more common in smokers. Flu A infection appears to be a risk factor. I'm not really sure about the kind of etiology of that, uh, Calm, do you know? Yeah, when, when I was reading through the Public Health England guidance on this, which is uh, a good resource, they were talking about things that disrupt your normal mucosal barriers. So that's why smoking is thought to increase your risk and also influenza A, but other upper respiratory tract viral infections. And then other stuff. So it, it's more common in the, at the end of winter, sort of February, March uh, time. And people that reside in sort of closed or semi-closed communities, so the classic example is university halls of residence, but also military training camps. There can be outbreaks in refugee facilities, uh, places like that. Uh, and then in terms of host factors, stuff that would impair your ability to fight off meningococcus, so asplenism, uh, HIV or AIDS, uh, untreated, and then uh, certain complement deficiencies. Complement's really important for controlling um, Neisseria. And if you have a genetic complement deficiency, you would be at an increased risk. And then in terms of the bug itself, there are certain virulence factors which, if possessed by uh, meningococcus, make it more likely to invade. So no, number one is the is, is pillice, these, these kind of things that the bacteria uses to adhere to and then traverse epithelium. So they're getting through the epithelial barrier. Meningococci that have type 4 pili are, are more likely to uh, create invasive disease. The capsule, which is how we identify uh, the strains as well, which we'll talk about in lab ID, I think. So the capsule is only seen in invasive meningococcal disease. So uh, there uh, are meningococci which don't have uh, a capsule. They will not cause invasive disease. They'll just sit in the throat and do nothing. Uh, there's something called lipooligosaccharide, which is a bit like lipopolysaccharide in other gram-negative organisms, creates this overwhelming septic response. And it's responsible for the DIC uh, that meningococcal septicemia can cause. And lastly, there's something called opacity proteins. There's two of them, and they're uh, help the bug uh, adhere to and then invade uh, the mucosa. There's plenty of others. There's a really good review article on uh, antimicrobe.org on it if people want to go digging uh, further. And then when it comes to clinical syndromes, I mean, the, the commonest clinical syndrome will be asymptomatic carriage, I suppose. And, you know, humans are exchanging these pathogens between each other through aerosols all the time. And if you have more humans in close contact with each other, the chances are that they're going to transmit more uh, Neisseria colonies between each other. And that increases the risk that somebody is going to get invaded by an invasive species that they're not able to generate the immune response to in time. Slight sidebar. I just, I never thought this before. I guess an asymptom asymptomatic carriage isn't a clinical syndrome. Because a syndrome is a collection of symptoms or signs that denote a disease. Is that that's my understanding of a syndrome? But if you don't have any symptoms or signs, then how can you have a syndrome? But surely the absence of symptoms is a syndrome in and of itself. <laughs> um, who knows? I was interested actually, just to cut in slightly in the middle of your uh, spiel, is that you use the word meningococcus. Mm. Should we just explain what we mean by that? It's um, a colloquialism for Neisseria meningitis. Yeah. 
and it just comes off the idea that it's a, a caucus it's a you know a round organism and Syria manages this um it's a bit easier to say than having to constantly say Nisiria manages it Indeed, which is why I switched to it effortlessly in the middle of my uh, uh, talk. But thanks for um, singling it out and, and pointing it out to me, Cal. And the other thing to what mention... What would I actually, do without you? I don't know. Um, is You probably just get on with it quicker and less, <laughs> less sidebars. Um, the other thing you mentioned actually was complement deficiency. Wait, sorry, are we just doing now a sidebar on the sidebar? Yes. Complement deficiency, increasing risk, and sticking with the capsule theme, the... Complements very important as part of your immune response, but particular to encapsulated bacteria. Uh, so meningococcus, also streptococcus pneumo- pneumonia. So pneumococcus, um, so that's a good way to remember, is meningococcus pneumococcus, and then the third one is Haemophilus influenzae. There's many other encapsulated organisms, but those are the three main ones that you would think about in people that have complement deficiency or asplenic patients would be mm. another, another thing to think about. Cool. Tangent over. All right. So getting on to the other clinical conditions, do, do you want to talk about them, Cal? Do you want to talk about meningitis? Now I'm doing meningococcal. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so meningitis, um, Cal? Yeah. So you've got your patients. They have been exposed to a new strain of uh, meningococcus. And in the first sort of usually one to 14 days is the incubation period, they might develop invasive disease if they've got those risk factors before. Now, the first one to think about is meningitis. The other one is meningococcal um, sepsis or uh, bacteremia or septicemia, however you want to put it. Meningitis, now historically, there was quoted to be about 10 to 20% mortality, although that's dropped with uh, increased vaccination rates. And so the most recent figure I could find was about 5% in uh, the Green Book, uh, which is a handbook for uh, vaccinations. Although the mortality rises to 50% without treatment, so 5% uh, mortality with treatment, 50% untreated. Transmission, so to get into uh, the meninges and cause meningitis, uh, it can either go through the blood, so as we talked about in the bacteremia episode, uh, you know, you're you're getting invasion into mucous membranes, traveling through the blood, getting into the meninges across the blood-brain barrier, or directly through the ethmoid, ethmoid bone and cribriform plate. Uh, so tracking up from the nose because it's upper respiratory tract. Symptoms, so as with any other person with meningitis, the key symptoms are headache, fever, and altered mental status. Um, neck stiffness is there as well. And we'll talk about more of the, the symptoms and signs of meningitis and diagnosis of it in an upcoming meningitis episode. Mm. So, Jay, what about meningococcal septemia or sepsis? Is that better, worse? It's, it's much worse. So it's um, even with treatment has a 50% mortality. Um, it's thankfully it's much less common uh, than meningitis and both conditions are, are much less common than they used to be thanks to vaccination but it usually starts with fever it can be co-present with meningitis which is why whenever you have somebody they think has meningitis you go looking for the rash and the thing that everybody looks out for is a petechial non-blanching rash and if left untreated these petechiae they come up and then they can sort of coalesce and they can enlarge in size and form bully and ecchymoses, you know, big bruises, but much more than a standard bruise that you might get if you injured yourself. And that, uh, again, can proceed to 
cutaneous hemorrhage and uh, skin necrosis. The reason that all of this is happening is because there's a disseminated coagulopathy going off, uh, sorry, happening uh, throughout the body in that these petechiae are just the cutaneous manifestation of that, but it's happening everywhere. It's happening in all the organ systems. It's happening in the liver. It's happening in the spleen. And this is is rapidly uh, progressive. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. I did not treat this patient, but my uh, A&E registrar did. So I was I was doing ST1 emergency medicine, and she told me this story about a patient who came in with a couple of days worth of headache. And she found she was doing a, a standard sort of screen to look, and she found one petechiae on her arm. And she thought, oh, that's odd. And she asked the patient, um, you know, did you... Uh, have this this morning and she sort of said no and as she said no she noticed another one that hadn't been there at the start of the examination and she went and uh, got a got a nurse and and to take the patient's temperature and by the in the in the act of kind of going and coming back three more had popped up and at this point uh, she hits the panic button and goes and gets a load of ceftriaxone and shoves it in the patient and calls intensive care because now her blood pressure is starting to drop. And this patient goes to intensive care. It's like a young girl and she dies um, because that wasn't quick enough. And, you know, if you think about that first petechiae to ceftriaxone going in time, almost like a door to needle time, but for for meningococcal septicemia, that couldn't have been more than 10 minutes. But you still couldn't save her. So when we say rapidly progressive, we really mean rapidly progressive. There's, I can't think of anything scarier than meningococcal septicemia in bacteriology. Um, in terms of other clinical conditions, th these are not very common at all, but they can occasionally cause pneumonia, septic arthritis. They've been known to cause pericarditis and actually it's been known to cause urethritis. But these, I think, are very small print uh, indeed. Yeah. The big, two big things to worry about are meningitis, which is scary, and meningococcal septicemia, which is very scary. It's, uh, it's, I think, something that we see very rarely now, fortunately. And when you do see it, it can be so sudden and severe and I think pushing the panic button is an accurate uh, description of what you what you do when you realize that this is the the diagnosis or you suspect it's a diagnosis mm. yeah it is one of the rare um, situations where I will not begrudge you using keftriaxone so yes once you've got someone who's got a case one of the key things is making sure it doesn't spread or trying to uh, reduce its spread and uh, transmission is generally within close contacts and households. The highest risk within the first seven days after contact and the highest absolute risk is, isn't that high. So within 30 days of exposure, around about one in 300 exposed like close contacts, household contacts would develop invasive disease if given no prophylaxis. Uh, so we give prophylaxis to try and stop this from spreading one to reduce other invasive cases but also to prevent onwards transmission in a sort of um, secondary cases mm. and the number needed to treat is about 218 to prevent one invasive case which might seem like a lot of people 
But considering that most of the time this is a one-off dose of antibiotics, and if you do get invasive disease, it can be so severe, it's, I think, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and prophylaxis reduces secondary cases by about 90%. Yeah. And we'll talk about prophylaxis shortly. Yeah, so that's the clinical syndromes. Um, should we just talk a little bit more about the, the sort of lab side and the, the ID, a bit more of the micro? Callum, uh, take us through the microbiology here. Okay. Microbiology mode engaged. <laughs> we need to do that every episode. Yes. Well, someone was suggesting that we need little jingles between sections, so I'm still going to put that on EJM to record some. I'm just going to record me saying microbiology mode engaged. Okay. Uh, so we talked about the gram. Is a gram-negative diplococci. Mm. Usually uh, we'll isolate that from a sterile site, CSF or blood. You might get it on a, a throat swab. And when you get a gram-negative diplococci, you're going to be thinking this is going to be nice here, you mentioned if they have the correct clinical syndrome until proven otherwise. You can culture on chocolate agar or thyre martin, which is a muller agar with some sheep blood. And it also has um, a cocktail of antibiotics, vancomycin, polymyxin, nystatin, and trimethoprim to suppress growth of other organisms. That's a selective agar, agar which should be useful if you're trying to get on a throat swab or a nose swab. Um, the ID, so uh, it's oxidase positive, so you can do that really quickly and that'll differentiate it from uh, other organisms which are oxidase negative, and it should be catalase positive, and it should be glucose positive, maltase positive. Oh, and uh, sidebar, Callum. Sidebar. Oh, I hate sidebars. Well, the, today's the episode for sidebars, apparently. Okay. But I read this about catalase and I thought it was pretty cool. So the Neisseria uses its catalase to neutralize the reactive oxygen species that is produced when the uh, neutrophils do their uh, attempt to kill the organism in lysosomes. Uh, one of the virulence factors is, is um, that it's got catalase and can use it in this way. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I guess we often think about these tests from the lab point of view, but they must have a function in the bacteria. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they're not just carrying around oxidase for no particular reason. They're not doing it to help us identify them. Yeah, it, sometimes I, I think it funny because like on my job description it has the word microbiologist, but uh, I know people that have done microbiology degrees and I know, you know, I have known and forgotten a lot of the time basic science of bacteria, but I don't really need to know or care. Um, it's interesting, uh, but it doesn't really matter to me uh, what the different bacteria work as long as I can identify them and kill them. Believe you me, Calm, if the loyal listener knows one thing, it's how little you know about microbiology. <laughs> well, yeah, let's see what happens with the exam. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's glucose positive, maltose positive, and sucrose negative. And once you've got your sort of preliminary ID, you would then go on to doing a, some sort of confirmatory ID. Uh, and one of the main things you want to try and figure out is uh, one is the capsule antigen uh, and another thing is uh, doing more detailed testing usually through mlst to see if there's you know for public health contact tracing and uh, looking for clusters so the polysaccharide capsule jane why don't you talk us through that yes yeah, so these are what we use to sort of identify the different strains uh, and there are kind of six main strains there's 13 but actually these six account for just about all, all disease and are what we've based the vaccines on so there's strain a b c 
There's W135. No, I don't know why there's a 135 after the uh, letter X and Y. And they've got sort of zones of, of influence across the world. So uh, A is predominantly found in Africa. B is, is in the Europe and the Americas. C is Africa, Europe, and the Americas. Um, so almost like an A plus B. W135 is responsible for epidemics. Uh, notably, there have been epidemics associated with uh, uh, Muslim pilgrimage, uh, Hajj. And then there's X and there's Y, which is predominantly in North America only. I don't really know where X is, is predominant in. And you can, you can identify it using these polysaccharide uh, capsule antigens, or, which is more commonly done these days, you can do a PCR or you can run a sample through a Molotov. And uh, you've got a little note here, uh, Kalman, our, our show notes about uh, Molotov not being all that reliable. Yes. Yeah, so the base, when you when you have your Molotov, you have a sort of database of, you know, this organism should look like this profile. Uh, we really need to do an episode of Molotov. Because we keep talking about it. And Neisteria mengesidis is a very variable organism, and there's quite a lot of overlap genetically between the other Neisseria species. Yeah. And so Molotov isn't excellent at calling it. Um, so there was a paper that was reading on PubMed where they, they did in France where they'd looked and seen how reliable it was. And uh, with the base baseline database, it was about 26% correlation between MLST typing and other species and the Molotov ID. That's and, rough. <laughs> yeah. But then what they did was they went and um, they, you know, put in the data. So it's one of these things where Molotov is based off having a lot of data. And so as we use it more and people do these sort of studies and identify these things and put more data in, and then the companies update it, then it will get better. So that might be historical. Yeah. So we're not going to explain how the Moldy works now, um, but just know that the thing that this thing is is doing is it's looking at the ribosome structure and uh, comparing it against known profiles. So if you've got organisms which have very similar ribosomal structures, then, you know, thinking about things like strep pneumoniae and strep mitis is, is one example, or E. coli and Shigella, which are phylogenetically very closely linked to each other. If they've got similar ribosomal structures, it's kind of difficult for the Maldi to tell them apart. It can do it most of the time, but if you've got something that's uh, it doesn't have a huge amount of experience of, then uh, it's it's prone to miscalling it and misidentifying it. Mm. And if it can't tell between different species of in a genus, then yeah, you, you kind of have to go back to your uh, clinical syndrome and say, what are you looking at? Is this somebody who looks like they've got gonorrhea, or are they in intensive care with meningococcal sepsis? You know. Um, so yeah, you've got your preliminary ID of uh, meningococcus and you then go on to do a confirmatory ID. So that could be Molotov. You might do PCR. So PCR testing for Neisseria meningitis is commonly done as a screening test as well as a confirmation. So the two scenarios are either you grow the organism on a culture and then you do PCR or something else to confirm it. Or, and actually this is now, I think, probably more common is that you get a blood or CSF sample and you do the PCR directly on that, looking yeah. for the organisms that cause uh, meningitis. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's, I don't, I don't think that's really widespread, but I think certainly in biggish labs, 
that you would find in sort of city hospitals, uh, then yeah. most of them will have this. And we we should be doing will... it. It's one of these things that has been, uh, as many things, uh, slow um, to to come in, but it definitely increases your sensitivity. And it's in the UK meningitis guidance is one of the things we should be doing. And in the yeah. standards for microbiological investigation, which is a really helpful um, set of um guidelines for what you should do in the lab as a basic you know we should be doing pcr on uh, on blood uh, ideally uh, edta blood and csf uh for mysteria meningitis because we know that as jane was saying they're on really key to get your antibiotics in quickly and so it's not an unusual scenario to see patients where they've had either pre-hospital antibiotics so I am benzyl penicillin in the community, or they might have had their keftraxin before they got the blood cultures or before they got the lumbar puncture. And nobody's going to criticize that because, you know, it's really key to get antibiotics in quickly, but it does make culturing them quite difficult. So PCR yeah, is really yeah. useful there. You, you have a window. And if you have antibiotics on board for more than about 24 hours, your yield drops to uh, virtually nil. Yeah. Uh, whereas the PCR will still work for a little while. Yeah. Um, but then it also will will drop off. So normally we use Molditol for PCR to do confirmatory testing. Uh, in the SMI, there's some other tests you can use. You can use biochemical testing kits and uh, rapid um, uh, commercial tests are available. Uh, if you want to get uh, serogroup levels, you can either do uh, latex or slide agglutination tests. And finally, you can use we use multi-locus sequence typing to characterize strains. And so that's used a lot. So say you've got a cluster of cases, you would do MLST to say, you know, are these linked or are they not linked? Yeah, you would. You generally um, say a patient's come in and they've got confirmed disease on blood or CSF. Nasopharyngeal swab isn't that useful for diagnosis because there's a carriage rate. But if someone has confirmed infection, it's useful to get a swab for public health because then you can see if they're a carrier uh, nasally and if they've got any other strains. Um, so it's a sort of adjunct. But yeah, that's the, that's the main stuff about the microbiology and some maybe non-main stuff as well. Okay. Do you want to talk about your favorite bit, James? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think most um, uh, listeners will have will know that we uh, treat meningitis, meningococcal septicemia empirically with keftraxone. Uh, meningococci are in some usually sensitive to penicillins, and that used to be the treatment of choice. And that's why in the pre-hospital setting, most GP practices will have on hand some benzyl penicillin that they can give IM uh, to the patient before transfer to the hospital. Uh, but now, because there's a slight increase in, in penicillin uh, resistance rates, uh, third-generation cephalosporins are considered the treatment of choice. And you might ask why, why not first-generation, second-generation? It's all to do with penetrance, the blood-brain barrier, um, keftraxone and kefataxime and third-generation cephalosporins of that nature cross the blood-brain barrier, assuming that it is inflamed in a meningitic patient uh, quite easily. Um, and the standard dosing for this is what we call neurodosing or meningitis dosing, which is two grams twice a day uh, for five to seven days. Usually, five, I think it's five days in the BIA meningitis guidelines. 
So shorter is better. There are alternatives that you can use. Um, in the BIA guidance for treatment of meningitis, the penicillin allergic alternative is chloramphenicol, 25 milligrams per kilogram every six hours. I have to say I did recommend this once um, and uh, to, to any uh, doctor that was calling me whilst I was on call for micro and in the morning uh, was asked by the microbiologist why I didn't just uh, ask them to use a carbapenem instead. And uh, the reason is because that's what was in the guideline. But I realize now that a lot of my consultant um, seniors uh, would have just defaulted to using meropenem instead because there's so little clinical experience with chloramphenicol these days. I, I've never given it. I know there are some bits of the UK uh, that have been using it more. I don't know, Calm, if you've ever used it. I've been involved. I've never re recommended it directly, but um, yeah, I think it depends on your experience. And also it's not just your experience in recommending it, but if you're not the treating clinician, then the, the treating team, um, and it does have quite significant side effects. Although I don't know if they're as, mm. as um, commonplace as we previously thought. I don't think so. Not with, not with the short courses that you would be using in this, in yeah. this case. And in any case, um, if the alternative is death, um, you can put up with a lot of side effects. Yes. Although if, you know, I guess it's not the only option. So carbapenems like meropenem are uh, very good at penetrating to the CNS are effective yeah. and, yeah. you know, actually have pretty few side effects other than just, you know, being very, very broad spectrum. Um, that said, the BIA have recommended chloramphenicol. So that is on paper the, the second line choice. Uh, so, yes, Keftraxone, chloramphenicol, carbapenems, penicillins. If you, if you find that it's sensitive to penicillin, which for reference is an MIC of less than 0.1 uh, milligrams per litre, then you can switch to using Benpen. I have to say, because you have to give Benpen every four hours, um, I don't see this done an awful lot, but it, it, it is an option uh, about that. Uh, Calm, do you want to talk about contact prophylaxis? We mentioned it kind of briefly earlier. Um, um, so the prophylaxis that they'll give is usually a single dose of Cipro, which is 500 milligrams for adults and children over 12. And uh, although there's the sort of MHRA warning about using ciprofloxacin and not using it unless you really have to, essentially the guidance is to use that over the other options, rifampicin, uh, which is 600 milligrams twice a day for two days. Uh, and the rationale for using recommending Cipro over Rifampicin is that it's a lot less dose. It's only one dose and it doesn't have as many interactions. So with um, hormonal con contraception being the main one with Rifampicin, but other drugs. Um, you can also, if say someone's been treated and they've got Keftraxone, then you wouldn't need to give them any uh, prophylaxis. And what you're trying to do is give a drug that um, eradicates carriage so you would say like, okay, well, sensitive to penicillin or these other antibiotics, why are we not using them for prophylaxis? Well, they're not as good. So penicillin doesn't effectively clear carriage as much as Cipro and Rifampicin do. It's mm. probably something to do with penetrance um, and uh, volume of distribution. Um, other things to think about in terms of contacts. So this is something that's often asked when there's a case in hospital, people get very worried uh, about it. Um, if you're a healthcare worker, um, if you're in contact, the only thing that we really consider a risk is uh, close contact uh, with respiratory secretions, uh, droplets, uh, 
and that's really just airway maneuvers. So if you're your anesthetist standing over the patient or you intubate them and you're not wearing PPE, then that would be a risk. Now, uh, this did happen. Um, people used to, you know, get intubated and people wouldn't be wearing surgical face masks. So it wasn't mandatory. Then later on, find out it's meningococcus. Uh, now in the COVID era, uh, you know, there's universal PPE. So I think that's probably not something that we should be seeing uh, generally. Mm. Uh, not least because now most of the population is vaccinated. Oh, well, yes, that's a good segue. Uh, so in terms of vaccinations, we've got we've got two. We've got the men B vaccinations, the meningitis B uh, serogroup, and that's um, part of the pediatric, uh, part of the childhood vaccination schedule. So that's given at two, four, and 12 months. And then there's also the men ACWY so if you think they've already had B and now they're getting A and C and W and Y, that's most that's five of the six strains that cause that cause the lion's share of, of invasive meningococcal disease. And that's given at sort of 13 or 14 years, so sort of secondary school age, kind of about the same age that people used to get the BCG. Uh, and then at university, so there's university vaccination programs. And those two shots have really kind of floored um, Neisseria meningitis uh, disease uh, in the UK to the point where we last week actually Cal in uh, Nadosh Royal Infirmary we had a gram stain that was misdiagnosed as decolorized gram positive cocci diplococci um, in a patient that had headache and fever uh, that was uh, picked up as Neisseria meningitis on the Molotov and then people went back and looked at uh, the gram scene and realized that these were actually gram negative diplococci. And that's just because the BMSs don't have experience of seeing it on the gram stain. They don't really see gram negative diplococci. And so when they do see it, they kind of assume that they've just over decolorized mm. uh, the gram stain. So it's, a, it's an error of processing. And you also, you know, the clinical syndrome, you really have to be careful with gram stains. You can't trust them. No, no, the trust the patient, not the... Yeah, so vaccination. So there's there's more than two vaccines. There's several different what types of, of vaccine that you can give. People just get the pure B vaccine. And uh, you, it's part of a routine schedule. Uh, other people that might get it would be close contacts of index cases to prevent secondary spread. Most of the time you get prophylaxis, but um, you might give it to spread to prevent further spread if there's subcontraindication. Yeah, say there was an outbreak in a halls of residence, for example. Yeah, you might uh, target or vaccinate everybody. Yep. So that's Neisseria meningitis. Okay, so moving on to Neisseria gonorrhea, the other um, uh, main pathogen of this uh, genus. So people will probably know of this as a sexually transmitted infection. It is... Um, usually a cause of, of urethritis in, in males and, and cervicitis in women. Uh, it's the second commonest STI in the UK behind chlamydia. Um, it is not a commensal. Um, so if you find it, you should always uh, treat uh, gonorrhea. About a third of cases, uh, the patient is actually co-infected with chlamydia, the commonest uh, STI. And so you need to test. Usually these are tested uh, for at the same time um, 
Uh, and so, like I say, the, the, the main site of infection, and it is always infection, it's never colonization, is the urethra, particularly in men, and the uh, cervical mucosa uh, in women. And then secondarily, if, if the pathogen transmits retrograde, it can go down the urinary tract and cause epididymitis uh, in males and salpingitis, which is fallopian tube inflammation uh, for the uninitiated in women and pelvic inflammatory disease, as can chlamydia as well. And then the final sort of site that it can go to if, if the disease gets severe enough, it can metastasize to the joints and cause arthritis uh, to the skin. Uh, it can uh, very rarely uh, cause endocarditis. And I did not know this, Callum, but it can cause meningitis too, if left completely uncontrolled, uh, which I had never heard of. That's interesting. I um, Yeah, I think the only metastatic complications of it I've seen has been the arthritis, septic arthritis. And it can yeah. be quite problematic. I think the patient had multiple washouts and had quite a long hospital admission and lots of antibiotics. It was, it was quite difficult to treat. In terms of uh, risk factors? Uh, so yeah, generally young males, young females. So age for males most common is 20 to 24 and for females it's 16 to 19. Uh, it's also an association with urban area and our, um, have a higher deprivation index. It's more common in people that um, have high risk sexual activity, uh, particularly in men who have sex with men. So clinical syndromes. So generally speaking, once you've been exposed to gonorrhea, the incubation period uh, to develop symptoms is around two to five days. In men, the symptoms are generally urethritis, uh, which is will present a sort of dysuria and frequency and also purulent discharge. Women will present with cervicitis and vaginal discharge, itch or dysuria. You can get it in other sites, which are not the reproductive tract. So uh, pharyngeal, rectal, or in women, you can also get, can get asymptomatic uh, colonization. Yeah, all these sites, so pharynx, rectum, and uh, the female urethra are asymptomatic. Hmm. Um, so you, it's important when you're seeing someone and you're doing an STI screen uh, to take a full sexual history and to swab uh, any sites um, because you know, that obviously there's an ongoing risk of transmission to others uh, or of invasive disease if you don't identify it. Will I ever go at ID? Yeah. I don't normally do ID. Micro-mode Micro engaged. engaged. Uh, okay, so um, the identification in the lab sort of, it's, it's the same for Neisseria gonorrhea as it would be for meningitis, but obviously the clinical situation is different. So what kind of samples uh, do you want? So for men, you want a first-pass urine. So you want the first bit of urine that passes through the infected site. That's, that's the, the urethra. And for women, you want a vaginal or endocervical uh, swab or high vaginal uh, swab. And once you've got those samples, you've got two options, really. One is that you can try and culture it, and the other is that you can PCR test it. PCR testing is becoming much more uh, common. It's got a sensitivity of about 96%. It's really, really good. Um, but uh, culture sensitivity is actually also quite good. It's about 90%. And it's, it's important because with gonorrhea, we have antibiotic resistance to worry about, which we didn't, don't really have with meningococcus. Um, the agar that 
uh, we use in, in NADOS Royal Infirmary is uh, NYC agar, New York City uh, agar. It was, that's where it was developed. Uh, but that's a, a chocolate agar plate, which has a cocktail of four uh, antibiotics. Uh, sometimes it's called a VCAT plate. That's because it's named after these uh, antibi antimicrobials there, vancomycin, colistin, amphotericin, and trimethoprim. And if you think about the antimicrobial spectrum of these four, you'll think that they're, they're kind of covering everything except uh, Neisseria. And so that allows the uh, gonorrhea to grow. And if you incubate on that uh, agar plate for 24 to 48 hours, and then you find oxidase positive colonies, that's Neisseria gonorrhea until proven otherwise. People do sometimes do microscopy as well on these samples the urine, first pass urine in men and an endocervical swab in women. But importantly, you shouldn't do microscopy on pharyngeal or rectal samples because the, the yield is, is low uh, there. And then lastly, in, in terms of confirmatory testing, if you've um, identified it by culture, you can confirm it by PCR. Uh, you can do a Molotov. Uh, there are gonorrhea-specific uh, antibodies which are targeting the Kellogg types of uh, gonorrhea. So there are four uh, sera groups of uh, gonorrhea and they're, they're called Kellogg types, you know, like the cereal. Uh, there's T1 and there's T2 and then there's T3 and T4. T1 and T2 have lots of uh, fimbriae, which allows them to attach to mucosal surfaces and resist phagocytosis and means that they're quite virulent. Uh, T3 and T4 don't have any fimbriae and they're much less virulent, although of course they can still cause disease. And then just as with Nicene meningitis, there are carbohydrate utilization tests. So as a reminder, gonorrhea will ferment uh, glucose, uh, but not maltose, whereas meningitis will ferment both. How do you kill them, Cal? So for the treatment, I guess it's important to differentiate uncomplicated gonococcal disease from sort of complicated or disseminated. So for uncomplicated, that's going to be your urephritis, your cervicitis. You're going to most of the time be giving people keftraxone, one gram, uh, and that's intramuscularly. Uh, so you can get them as an outpatient. And that's just one mm. dose and you're done. It's great. Yeah. Um, ideally, you get the culture results and you see what it's sensitive to. And if we know that the gonococcal uh, organism is sensitive to ciprofloxacin, then that is another good option. And the advantage of that is it's oral, but the problem, and it's 500 milligrams once off. The problem is that 36% from recent data in 2017 of UK isolates are resistant to ciprofloxacin. So it's not a good empirical first line. And interestingly, the, the previous sort of BASH guidance or the people that write the guidance for this recommended giving keftraxone and azithromycin, but for various reasons that the azithromycin advice has been dropped yeah yeah i just think they were using not enough keftraxone possibly yeah and the other thing if azithromycin is, is a great drug it's a macrolide did we talk about it but i don't think we talked about it before really but um, well, we haven't done the idiot's guide to macrolide we have yet, not don't, believe me it's in the it's in the pipeline don't you worry about it Cal. yeah it's got a very long half-life so it hangs around for a while which is Good in terms of you don't need to give many tablets, but bad because he has this long tail of low levels of antibiotics. And if, mm. if you want to select out anti uh, bacteria that have resistance, then a good thing to do is expose them to a low level of an antibiotic for quite a long time. Yeah. 
the the there are other regimens um that are kind of small print if you can't give keftraxone or cipro you could give cefixime or gentamicin or spectinomycin all with two grams of azithromycin stat Um, the details are in the the bash 2018 guidance but to be honest they're they're fairly small print most people get a shot of keftraxone in their arm and are sent on their way and if they've got complicated disease, so that's things like PID or it might be, you know, septic arthritis, then the treatment is going to be different. It's generally speaking based on keftraxone still, but you might give a longer duration. Um, and again, we won't go into that because you can just look it up. Yeah, yeah true. It's too uh, detailed for us. Yeah. Don't memorize anything that you can look up would be my advice. Uh, and that's all we got to say on Nicedia. Nicedia nobled. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. Nice to Nicedia you. <laughs> <laughs>